Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, joined uh, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 or so. Joined, as usual, with uh, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How are you doing, Stas? Good. And uh, we got Rebecca live tweeting over there in the booth with Jack Inslee, Jackie Molecules, our intrepid engineer. How are you doing, guys? Sorry, we're good. I can't believe uh, we're so on time today. It's a, that's miraculous. Well, in order to get me here on time, you have to get me flying in from the passport office in Stanford, Connecticut, which right. we can talk about in, in a bit. But <laughs> special guest in the studio today, Harold McGee. That's right. That's right. He's here. I didn't give you any advance notice because I only want diehard fans to be able to call in to 718-497-2128. That is, and I'll say it at a reasonable pace this time, 718-497-2128. Is that even right? Because I can't do it slowly. Is that right? Yeah. Anyway, so call in your questions uh, to uh, Harold McGee. I mean, probably you should keep them to a kind of a cooking-related kind of a theme, but, you know, it's up to you. you know, he's pretty open. Uh <laughs> Harold is in town because he is going to do a talk at the Museum of Food and Drink Lab uh, on 62 Bayard Street this week on Thursday, right? Thursday. What uh, what time is it? 6.30. And I believe you can still – I don't know. if It's probably sold out, but – you know, don't listen to me. Go on the on the MoFad website and look up. Uh, I think under the program you can see. Uh, and what are you going to be talking about? Um, stuff. Um, Peter Kim and I, Peter, the director of the museum, and I are going to just kind of chat about flavor and then take uh, questions from the audience. So, flavor, you're for it or against it? Uh, mostly for it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. There is an anti-flavor thing going on now. It's kind of like the the it goes part of the theme of uh, 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 sugar, salt, fat, whatever order that is. Plus, uh, you know, the Dorito effect, basically uh, chiding chiding corporations on their pernicious inclusion of those addicting flavors into food. So you're not you're not part of the anti-flavor. No, band. kind kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I was a corporation, which I guess Stas, we are kind of a corporation. We we're an LLC. We're not a mega corporation, though. Like we're not we're not hated yet for our. You are an LLC. Well, me me personally, I have a personal. You have an LLC, but Booker and, and Dax is an LLC. LLC. Booker yeah. and Dax is an LLC. Yeah, yeah. But we're not like a mega corporation. People people can't hate yeah, us for that yet. We don't have like corporate hegemony yet. We haven't reached kind of that Monsanto level yet, right? We're not, you know, mucking about with uh, whole cultures yet. Uh, the so, anyways, so the uh, where was where was I going with this? So yeah, so you, I mean, obviously, corporations want to make stuff taste better for people. I mean, it seems obvious. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you would expect them to do that. So. No. All right. I have a question, and actually, that I know you have uh, thoughts on from last week. Unless you have something super pressing, I have last no, week's question. No, I questions. have. Uh, 
Twitter questions for you. All right. Well, let, me, let me tackle this one. This is in from, uh, actually, family member of mine, Brady Huggett. Just wanted us to comment on the whole Aquabest. Uh, Aquabest, is that the name of the corporation? The salmon, the genetically engineered salmon that just got uh, approved and the people who vow to uh, vow to squash it. Do you want to talk about that or do you want to leave it uh, untalked about? Do you not want to dip your toes into the water of uh, – Genetically engineered salmon. Perhaps I should tell people what it is first. It's a salmon that's been, um, I believe, uh, they, they, they've basically taken uh, and made it. I don't know whether it's an addition or a deletion of a gene. I haven't researched I it it's enough. An addition from a fish called the pout. The pout. Yes. Wow, that's a nice thing. Does it look pouty, the fish? <laughs> is it named for its look? I've, I've never beholden a pot, uh, pout. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, kind of the the poorly named. It's pronounced crappie, but written crappy. Uh-huh. <laughs> which why would you want to name a fish crappy? But anyway, so uh, it it grows uh, it grows faster, has better feed conversion ratio uh, than uh, ordinary uh, salmon, right? Yeah. And so, uh, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, my thought is I've been following this now for what fifteen years or something like that. That uh, they first. Uh, put the gene in the fish and began to talk about this. I'm amazed that they're still um, able to have a proposal in front of the FDA. Uh, and I'm a, a kind of fascinated bystander. I don't have strong feelings one way or the other. I think it's important to make sure that fish that have been engineered don't get out into the world at large. I can't see how a fish engineered in this particular way is going to be a problem for human consumers. So I want to see what happens. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of bad information uh, out there on it. Um, the you know one of the interesting things is that uh, uh, the the fear is that you're going to have a uh, an American crayfish. One of the fears is that you're going to have like an American crayfish kind of a situation where these salmon get out there, start interbreeding with uh, you know the regular salmon. And then uh, all hell breaks loose, and you get these fast-growing salmon that are clogging up. The, I guess this is one of the you know we lose. Yeah, right. I mean that's the that's the fear. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, uh, what happened is they um, these fish are sterile. They're only releasing uh, one sex of fish, female, and those females are I believe it's female, and those females are uh, sterile. So they're not uh, able to have baby fish, right? So that's supposed to get around the thing. Stas, when was the last time you saw Jurassic Park? It's been a long time. time. Those were also supposed to be sterile, right? Now remember, this is a movie (laughs) written from a book by a guy who's now dead. But does anyone remember how it is that the the Jurassic Park, anyone? Harold, do you remember that? Rebecca, Jack, you remember how that worked? It's been too long. Maybe someone can tweet in how, in a fictional account... The sterility of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, whatever it was, or the, no Velociraptor, I believe it was in this case. Uh, how that was, uh, how that life will find a way, as Jeff Goldblum said in one of his more irritating roles. Um, anyways, the point is, is that they are engineered to be sterile, and uh, some of the people who are against this uh, fish uh, basically are. They point out a an, uh, a, sta- a study that was done that proves proves. That uh, this fish can actually interbreed with regular fish, and so the the fish was supplied to them by the you know by the company that makes them. Mm-hmm. However, they supplied them with genetically uh, engineered yet 
non-sterile fish specifically for this study. <laughs> so the study, the study was to show that if you didn't have a sterilized fish, uh, could it interbreed with the regular wild population of uh, brown trout and salmon? Because they're worried about the brown trout. Because remember, these are being raised inland. So the question is: Is can this salmon hybridize with? inland uh, like lake uh, and river uh, brown trout should it like make it out into the thing and they found out that yes it can if they were if they were uh, not sterilized and albeit only poorly even in that case and yet this is you know touted as being uh, you know how you know they, they that there's you know there's that somehow uh, that it's possible for the ones that they're going to raise to go out into the wild Have you read this stuff yes yes yeah, so it seems pretty ironclad, but I, I'm glad that there are people out there, you know, pushing, making sure for the rest of us. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. But but what I don't like is just like the false, like the falseness of uh, yeah, like leave, per- leaving out important details. Yes, like the fish <laughs> yes. that they tested that could interbreed only poorly actually weren't the fish that people are actually raising. They were exactly. they were uh, they had a you know whatever. Whatever. It's just it, it, people like it's very hard to get uh, you know uh, any good information on either side. Um, all right. So uh, you want to do some Twitter questions? Sure. What are we going to do? All right. So Nut Milk King wants to know, Dave, any thoughts or info on dry aging turkey? Best duck I had was at EMP and it was aged for a week. That's a different meat, obviously. By curious. Oh, obviously, Whoa. but curious. I like how I like how Nut Milk King is by curious. That's great. Uh, the uh, I've never Asian turkey, which, which, by the way, like uh, I messed up the Thanksgiving turkey a little bit. It was still delicious, but I did mess it up a little bit. We can talk about that later. Uh, it would, they were heritage breed Turks, turkey, Turks, turkeys, and uh, they were. Uh, I thought they were delicious. Did you try it, or were mm-hmm. you too busy? It was good, right? They're mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Did you try the confit and the breast? No. You didn't try the confit? No. Uh, no. Confit was good. Anyway, uh, I confit the legs out this year. Uh-huh. Ne- next, well, the problem is, is that it was very hard to arrange them into a bird, and I didn't have a bag big enough to do the uh, the, the breasts. Uh, and so, like, I tried to do a traditional cooking technique on the breasts. Next year, if I do a similar thing, which I probably will, I'm going to have to bust out the meat glue. I just didn't have the meat glue with me where I was. I didn't, I didn't adequately plan. I thought that just... Giving it time would, but I didn't adequately plan my uh, equipment uh, regimen to do it. That anyway, my bad. Still delicious. Finished in the tandoor. Oh yeah, I did one in the tandoor, and uh, I didn't end up deep frying the other one. I ended up doing the other one in the oven. But yeah, the tandoor. Okay, here's the issue with the tandoor, right? So I had the bird around the stuffing plug, right, with uncooked breast, but the stuffing plug was hot. So I was hoping that the stuffing plug would cook the breast meat from the inside out yeah. while I was going into the tandoor. Now, the tandoor goes back to you know what we've said many times is that you want very high instantaneous heat uh, input, but low average heat input. So the way you do a tandoor is in and out, and in and out, and in and out, and in and out, and in and out. Um, you know, but the cool thing is when it's in, it's getting hit from all sides at once. Yeah. So I bought a pair of cheap vice grips and uh, and vice gripped on, on the bottom of this, put the turkey on, wrapped it with a stuffing plug, tied it real tight so it looked kind of like a f- turkey football. It didn't have any bones in it except for the – well, the bones and the confit because they were already cooked out though, right? But the breast area had no bones. Uh, then – a ball of tinfoil to separate it from the next thing, and then a layer of tinfoil in the vice grip, the tinfoil to stop the, the, the intense heat from the live coals from burning the bottom side of the bird. Uh-huh. But there was just so much grease 
that and the turkey was so large relative to the size of the size of the tandoor and I so stoked the tandoor with coals that it was like it was like a freaking disco inferno inside of the tandoor. It was like <laughs> And then when I, I left it in there, so usually like when you're cooking in a tandoor and uh, you start getting flames off of like whatever grease is in the thing. You you can you close the bottom uh, like air vent a little bit. You damp that up a little bit, and then you put the lid back on the top, except for the little place where the skewers are coming out, and that deprives the enough oxygen usually that you don't get enough, like a large kind of a flames. But not when you have this much grease pouring off of the turkey. Uh, so then I pulled the turkey, you know, I had it actually two skewers through it, right? So I could do a double uh, grip. So the, the the trick to any having a tandoor is having a place you can put the skewers to rest in between your firings of the of the tandoor that's not like the ground or something else. So I, I have a spiral staircase next to the tandoor, so I was like putting them on the spiral staircase. But I went to go readjust, and it poured hot grease like all over my finger. You can still see the wrinkle marks in my finger from what used to kind of be a normal uh, finger. So that was unpleasant. But it tasted good. It was good. I would do it again, albeit a little bit uh, differently. I would dry the bird more uh, beforehand and maybe maybe not – maybe cook it all low temp with the bones in, which is you know, anathema normally. I don't know. I got to figure it out. But I would definitely tandoor it again because I like the flavor of the tandoor. Yeah. Yeah. I have ambitions to start tandooring. You should. Gotta, you need to own yeah. a tandoor. Yeah. First of all, you have a house in a backyard. Yes. So tandoor. <laughs> uh, you know, you, uh, I, I'm sure there's some place in, in San Francisco that sells them. But the place in New Jersey ships them. The problem is that the shipping charge is a little bit high, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, hey, I got to get a tandoor. Tandoor is the best. I love the tandoor. Hashtag vertical grilling. Uh, it's the best. Uh, you know, it's the only question is is, is uh, so like I, when I do steaks, I put the you know those like crappy fish grills that you can buy yeah. or veggie grills yeah. that you can buy. I have a bunch of those, and um, those usually have a place where you can uh, like where it folds down and you put a clip over it to hold it down. Yeah. And so that's a perfect place to shove a skewer through. So typically what I'll do is I'll throw like a uh, steak or anything like that, uh, you know, pieces that can't be skewered easily and uh, put them in the basket and then put them in the tandoor suspended over another skewer and close it. And so that's the uh-huh. way you do things that aren't normally tandoored. Yeah. 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 That's how you vertically grill things like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anywho. Uh, wait, but that doesn't answer the question. Dry aging turkey. What do you think? <laughs> You got to play with it. I mean, I've never done it before, so I would do it once. Maybe uh, plan on doing it for longer than is probably ideal, and see if that's the case. Maybe check it out as it's going. But I'd hang on to it for I don't know, ten days, something like that. Would you would you salt it ahead of time to stop any sort of anything that's kind of growing on the outside? Uh, I don't know. Maybe wipe it with vinegar every once in a while. Hmm. Try I'm, to kill I'm not it. A, yeah, yeah. Just keep it clean. What about uh, what about choosing a bird that whose meat is inherently darker? Is that going to be a good, like a, a heritage style bird, as opposed to a butterball? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, and of course, butterballs have other stuff. Uh, floating around in there. Diacetyl and, and oil? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do they actually put butter in a butterball? No idea. No idea. Haven't looked at the ingredient list <laughs> recently. 
You know who I bet you has tried to dry age a turkey? Johnny Hunter. I bet you Johnny Hunter has tried to dry age a turkey. Maybe he'll write in. All right. Anyway. All right. What, 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 else, what else we got? What else we got? Uh, Actually, I got a caller. Oh, caller. Caller. You're on the air. Hi, Dave. Uh, this is Jeffrey from Costa Mesa. How you doing? Uh, better now that I have the sweet Jackie Molecules uh, ringtone on my phone. Ah, nice. Uh, that means he's <laughs> a member. Uh-huh. Yeah. We'll play the ringtone except, maybe at the break. Except for when people call and answer at the right time, I instinctively say, Jackie Molecules, and then they, <laughs> they hang up because they think they have the wrong number. Well, you so know what, what though? Do you want to talk to those people? Do you want to talk to What's people? That? That, do you want to talk to people? Not necessarily, no. Yeah, no. So it works out. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, I called in about uh, blanching French fries for a shorter amount of time. Okay. A couple weeks ago. Right. Um, and what I'm just following up with that. Uh, it seemed as though... So I tried a few different times for the blanch and basically pushed to the the lowest amount of time... or Sorry, the most amount of time I could get... Uh, without them starting to all shatter. Right. So, the, the, so that the, was about... The, the theory here was, by the way, the call was about, uh, you know, when you blanch it as long as, you know, I usually do to get the best textural effect in the French fry, the potatoes are so loose that they're really beat up by the end. And so then, like, kind of getting around this. Go ahead. Right. Um, so, yeah, so about nine or ten minutes uh, was sort of the furthest I could go without, you know, a large amount of them shattering. Uh, and... So in about 10 minutes, it seemed like the, the starch was pretty well gelatinized, had a decent uh, salt penetration. So then I tried a few different oven temperatures and had kind of some interesting results. So at 300, uh, it was pre- pretty consistently got like hollow fry. Right. Uh, up at 350, they were a little more sort of dense, but the, the people that were kind of blind trying them, they liked the 350. Uh, and then 400 was my favorite. Uh, no hollow fry, pretty, pretty soft, kind of good, uh, you know, pillowy uh, potato texture. Uh, so, so 400 seemed to be the way to go just for you know another 10 minutes uh, before frying. Was the 400 um, was the 400 less time than the than the three and change that had the hollow fry? No, they were all. I did them all for 10 minutes just to see what. What would happen with that? So that that's, was that was curious. That's strange, right? So yeah. I mean, uh, Harold, do you remember like the the problem of French fries? Obviously, is one of uh, of uh, breaking the starch first to get the texture that you want, but also uh, moisture control both throughout the fry and at the crisp surface, right? Mm-hmm. And usually, hollow fry is the result of over drying. At least in my theory it's of over drying and so you lose kind of the substance that's on the inside of the fry and it basically just had this crisp outside but it's kind of odd right that you would have hollow fry at three and change or 300 300 for for 10 minutes and then not hollow fry you know what i bet you you're case hardening it is it like a dehydration Hmm. effect that's happening at the lower temperature? temperature Well, I think the hot, yeah, I think the lower temperature is probably more effectively dehydrating the entire fry, yeah. and right. you're, you must be getting some sort of case hardening effect at the higher temperature, and you're probably also uh, you're probably evacuating moisture at, at such a high rate at the surface that maybe you're. No, I'm not saying it's like searing where you there's a fake sealing of the crust. I'm saying <laughs> you, you're probably doing something to dense up the surface of the fry. Mm-hmm. There's got to be right. It's the only explanation I could think of. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So 
am I am I uh, dumb or or just uh, masochistic to after I I go through all these steps to make a French fry, uh, adding an additional step, and that feels normal. No, it shouldn't. No, you shouldn't be. No, that's good. That's good. I mean, it's, first of all, like there isn't normally a drying step anyway, so you're just having that drying step take place in an oven, right? right. Uh, and right. by the way, like this is how everything in the world happens through observation. Like if you had asked us, I presume, Harold. I mean, if you had asked us what would happen when you jack the temperature, I would have said more hollow fry. More hollow. Right. That's what I would have said. You know, not knowing. Right. But this is why it's very hard to answer questions from a theoretical basis, and you need to actually do the tests and pay attention to what goes on. You yeah. know. This is why you should so, always beware of people who tell you that they have the answer to something unless they actually run the specific test that they're telling you about. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what about uh, – I was wondering then about getting better salt penetration um, with that limited blanch time. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it affect the, the way that the pectinex is able to affect uh, you know, the starch and everything if I added salt to that bath? I do that, you know, the hour-long pectinax ultra. Well, I'm very – I I don't know uh, how much the salt is going to affect the enzyme. But just on a theoretical basis, I am suspicious that in the absence of the high blanching temperature that you're going to get too much more penetration than you will just by upping the salt content in your blanch water. What do you think, Harold? Um. Yeah, I'm. I'm not actually actually clear on this part of the system. Oh, so, so they so like they, they like the real like hardcore French fry technique, right? Is uh, so you know how the modernist folk uh, uh, they do the uh, ultrasonic bath to mess with the surface of the uh-huh, fry. Uh-huh. So like the one that you know we do is uh, is soak it in um, in a pectinex bath, which ah. which uh, you know kind of disrupts the surface yeah. of, of the yeah. fry, uh-huh. but. Uh, and that's our first step prior to – so you know how like you, you rinse the starch off normally in, you, mm-hmm. in water. You soak it. Some people soak it for a long time to, to uh, extract excess soluble sugar from the potato. Then you do your water blanch step with salt to put salt in and do the pre-cook on the starch. Then the question of drying, which we just addressed. Then yeah. fry one. Then sometimes freeze depending on what you want, and then fry two, right? Yeah. This is how you yeah. make a French fry. Yeah. This is how God would make a French fry. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the the point is that um, on the enzyme soak thing, I don't think – for instance, just soaking a potato in salty water I don't think is going to get uh, appreciably more penetration than just upping the salt content of the hot blanch water because it's okay. just so much Good faster, idea. the hot blanch water. Yeah. I would just jack the salt level in the blanch. Yeah, yeah. I'll give that a try. Yeah. And uh, thanks thanks to your recommendation, I'll now be uh, finishing fries in an outdoor Cajun fryer. Oh, uh, yeah. Make, Let us know how the Cajun fryer works. And they, uh, I got to give a uh, kind of props to them. I called their owner the night before Thanksgiving. We had that thing delivered. We're setting it up, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't lighting. So I called them. We're in California. I called them like 7.15 their time to the they just give like the home phone number for emergencies wow. <laughs> so i called the owner and uh he answered the phone kind of talked me through banging the regulator on on the tank and uh and got it working so and w- so did, did it work the, well uh, it Cajun worked well to anybody it worked well yeah nice it's beautiful yeah 
Good to know. Well, thanks for that. And you can buy the you can buy the Cajun Fryer at Bass Pro Shops. Although we're not affiliated. With <laughs> yeah, Bass Pro come Shops, on now. So, you know. Anyway, all right. Um, all right. I got a bunch of questions in the chat for Harold. If we want to start getting some of those. All right. Shoot, yeah. Shoot. All right. We'll go with the most recent one first. How about this? Interested in hearing Harold's thoughts on the bean liquid egg substitute aquafaba. <sighs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've gotten more emails about that than anything i can remember at least in in uh recent years so it's it's the the liquid from a can of chickpeas whips up into a nice meringue and uh as far as i can tell uh of course there's protein in there and starch uh but apparently there's also a fair amount of saponins which are molecules that are uh good at foaming so that you've got uh stuff in there that that wants to foam and then stuff in there that's going to stabilize a foam like the dissolved starch and and protein and the combination is this uh you know unexpected uh boon to vegan meringue makers so for those of you that don't uh, are not aware of the kind of genesis of uh on food and cooking uh harold's you know uh first book uh, it was as a result of him studying the fart-inducing principle of uh, beans. <laughs> you know, and so is part of that the saponins as well, or is that simply the polysaccharides that you don't digest that uh, bacteria? I don't think saponins are uh, flatulogenic, no. Well, that is a fantastic <laughs> word. That's a very good word. That's a fantastic <laughs> word. You like that word, Stas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even Nastasia likes that word, and that's so unusual for her to like a word. She has, like, her happy stars face on. It's unusual <laughs> in a situation like this. Uh, so i got got some more in here we should get to, right? right. Let's see. Uh, our old friend Elliot. Hey, Harold, can you talk about fermentation of herb stems in milk? Herb stems, sorry. Herb stems in milk. Which yep. Which herb? I don't know. He's yeah. here. He can probably answer that I quickly. know for a fact that, Harold, you've done work with amaranth stalks, but not in milk. No, no. And and there the aim is to make something as stinky as possible. I think that that's not likely with, with this one. Uh, I mean, in milk, you would get a, a lactic fermentation. Maybe the, the herb stems would be carrying naturally occurring lactobacilli, lactococci into the milk, and so they might help seed it. But I don't see what what the connection would be between the herb stems and the milk. I bet you that's a word Stas hates, lactococci. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the... Uh, the well, I mean, one, one for one. Yeah, well, some. I mean, some. Uh, like, I guess it depends on the herb. Like, cardoons will will break it, right? I mean, it's like it depends on. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but I'm thinking herbs. Herbs that I would think of would be more like you know parsley and things like that. And I'm not sure that they have any active. Um, active principles and cardoons yeah they've got a lot of tannin i think that's what what causes the coagulation when you're uh, doing them a blanc well is that the is well what's the what's the renneting thing in in the rest of the thistle family all about uh that's that's in the flower yeah yeah yeah. cardoon flower yeah yeah and that's a separate that's an actual enzyme that's right yeah Yeah. that 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 is almost identical to the enzyme in calf stomach Yeah. yeah crazily enough P.S. All you people that hate genetically modified food, all your cheese is made with genetically modified rennet. Uh, caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Uh, had a question for you on the, uh, the turkey in a bag from Thanksgiving. We had the debate and didn't know if it was – it started out we thought it was a cheap gimmick, you know, where you cook the turkey in a bag. 
This talk, and, you're talking uh, about the oven bags? But I, I kind of like large, I don't know, it's a, it's a baking bag. Um, yeah. Holds all the moisture in. Gotcha. And then we concluded that it might be like a poor man's combi, and we can't decide what huh. the science is going on inside the bag. Okay, well, every, and Harold will, you know, can, you know, every 20 years or so, uh, 20 to 30 years, as far as I can tell, bag cooking makes a big uh, a renaissance. So a bag, paper bag cooking was big when I was a kid. Uh, it's not paper anymore, but bag cooking – and by the way, bag cooking, not like sous vide bag. We're talking bag like a large en papillot style bag is, is, uh, is big now. Uh, I have a book from the – Early early 1900s from uh, Alexis Sawyer's like son or grandson on paper bag cookery back when paper uh, first started to be uh, regular paper first started to be non toxic so that it could be used uh, in in kind of cooking. So this is something that comes back again and again, and usually things that come back again and again have some merit. I would say, although I don't necessarily know what that merit is. Have you thought about this at all, Harold? Well, I'd actually look at it the other way around. If if things kind of come and go, they they go because they don't work so well, <laughs> right? And then come back because people forget. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, so, you know, specifically the question here is is like, is it like a poor man's combi, right? Like, are you keeping the, the steam in? I don't know. Like, I, I used to I mean the paper bag chicken. That I used to make when I was a kid, my memory of it is that it was good. It doesn't yeah. steam the bird in the sense that it, the, 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 the skin gets crispy. So it's not... Well, this is a different kind of bag, I guess, we're talking about. This one's much more plasticky, and well, I have a, my mother-in-law loves doing it. And I have to keep convincing her, if you're going to do the bag, at least open it up so the skin can get crispy. Because while the turkey's cooked, her skin's never... Yeah, I think we're, we're missing the best part. Uh, I, I think this is the. I think it's nylon that these uh, baking bags are made out, of, or some, something like that. You know, some some polymer that can take high temperatures. Uh, and I think the thing about them is that they, you are essentially because they are impermeable, unlike paper. Uh, you are trapping the steam, and you're not getting evaporative cooling. So the temp, you're you're essentially steaming or boiling. The bird, uh, you do get, I think, some radiant heat through the bag, so that it can kind of crisp up in spots. Mm. But uh, because the humidity is so high in there, it's uh, it's limited. So they're not. Uh, they don't. You don't poke holes in this bag. No, you you you. I think you are supposed to leave the end uh, that you tie off not not tied off tightly. Right. So you are you you do lose some, but but I think the the effective surface area of whatever opening there is is so small that it's it's negligible. So you don't have the you don't have the ability to lose enough moisture to have a what they call high relative humidity, whatever that means at elevated temperature, but elevated to the point where it's browning efficiently. Yeah, yeah. So that would be unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> I know you can cook a paper bag chicken and have the chicken be crispy, but you have to use the old school big paper bags, and you know you have to put plenty of butter on the skin of the chicken. Yeah. But again, 
maybe I was just wrong. Maybe the, you're you're asking me to remember what stuff tasted like when I was like eight and nine years old. That was like you know or ten. That's when I was you know doing my paper bag work. And it is true that using the modern silicone sealed parchment paper on papillote style, you get basically exclusively steamed results mm-hmm. out of things like fish. Do you yeah. like on papillote cooking in general, or do you hate it? Uh, I don't. I mean, I like it uh, if I want to cook fish and not have my house smell fishy. So I'll cook it uh, on papillote and then let it cool down so that, uh, you know, it doesn't, the, the moment I open it up, it doesn't just fill fill the space with fish smell. Oh. Well, what about the idea of, of that, like, uh, you know how, like, when you make an excellent, like, dashi, it's all about that moment, that re- aromatic reveal? Yeah. Don't you like yeah. that aspect of the on papillote? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's nice in, in somebody's... Somebody else's house or restaurant. <laughs> what do you like? What do you think, Styles? About your house filled with fish smell? No, no, no. You know what I detest? Uh, the the oil overheated fish oil is the worst. Mm-hmm. That is the worst. That stuff never. Except for when I'm when I'm doing sardines in a pan, I don't mind it because there's just something so. I mean, I don't like it the next day, but there's just something so marvelous about sardines cooked on a high heat. Yes, yes. You know, yeah, and I have my my favorite places to go to get that <laughs> in San Francisco. Really? What is it? Well, actually, it used to be in Canto, which is now closed, but Coxcomb does sardines also. So, uh, Chris Cosentino's place. Nice. Yeah, I'm sure he can cook a sardine up. Oh yeah. Stas, what are your thoughts on sardines? Like them. Like them a lot. Do you also like canned sardines? Um. Okay. Okay. James Beard, right? Among many, he had many faults. One was uh, preferred uh, electric. Now, I'm not talking induction. I'm talking crappy resistance electric uh, range tops to uh, gas. True story. Also thought that canned sardines were far superior to fresh sardines. Now, he's from the Pacific Northwest, right? So you presumably he could get good sardines. So this is just craziness. Like, I think that they're not the same product. I don't think they should be compared. I don't think that they're similar. Not only do I think that they're like like different, I think they are dissimilar products. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I love canned sardines, and I I love aged canned sardines. You know, you can get vintage aged. Yeah, we we t- yeah, we've tasted yeah, them together. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. You couldn't do that to a sardine sardine, and uh, yeah, they're 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 just uh, they, they offer different experiences. Do you pick out the weird? Calcium bonelets from the canned sardines, or you no, eat them? That's part of the part of the deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you and yeah. Booker both. What about you, Stas? Do you like that? Do you mind that? The, you know what I'm talking about? I the know, backbone. The back. The you ever? Backbones. Do you pu- do you pull the backbone out of your canned sardines, or are you the fancy folk that buy the skinless boneless? I don't know. Skinless boneless, I guess. Uh, <laughs> skinless boneless. I have so to admit, like I like skinless the... boneless. I don't like. I don't texturally because it's gritty. Uh-huh. It's not that it's crunchy. It's gritty. Because the the bones have dissolved, and all you have are these little kind of calcium bitlets left. Yeah. Not a yeah. fan of the calcium bitlet. Uh-huh. What about any, uh, in the engineering booth, Rebecca, Jackie? We're going to weigh in on the calcium bitlets. <laughs> I got nothing for you. There. Nothing. You guys don't eat sardines. Don't like sardines. What? No, I like sardines. Wait, Rebecca, you don't like sar- You don't like any form of sardine. I don't think so. Maybe on a Caesar salad. 
What? No, 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 no. No, I don't even like that that much. That is an anchovy. Ah, I knew it. As soon as I said I knew you were going to... That is an anchovy. I apologize. All right, no. so... So, okay, so you're saying you don't like anchovies either. Not particularly. I don't like little slimy fish. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. She also doesn't like bubbly water. Oh, my oh, God. Don't say that on the oh, air. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Spoiled. But here's my point. A good anchovy is not slimy. Like, look. Here's what you don't want to, like, start your life in anchovies. Go buy a can of uh, salted anchovies. Just straight salted anchovies. Maybe you should make me some. Stas, you like anchovy pasta, yeah? Yeah. Do you make it with the, with the crappy can stuff, or do you make it with the, uh, with the, uh, with the salted stuff? I make it with the salted stuff. You make it with the salted stuff, Harold? Yeah. Yeah. I do, too. Here's another thing. The white anchovy that, like, uh, you know, like the cured white anchovy... They are not the same thing. I do not like people saying that they are better than uh, salted or salted and then oiled anchovies. I think that they are different. And frankly, I'm a weirdo, but I could eat more salted anchovy than I could the cured. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone loves them. I love them. They're good, but they're not, yeah. the, they're not the same product. They, they shouldn't be compared. Yeah. You, you agree? Yeah. 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 No. This, this wonderful bounty, this cornucopia of different fish products. Yeah. They're all different. Yeah. 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 Hey, hey, people, is cod the same as salted cod? No. <laughs> no. They're different. They're different products. Another question here in the chat room. What do you got? What are some of Dave... This is an easy one. What are some of Dave and Harold's holiday gift suggestions for an aspiring home cook? Already have a circulator and a good set of pots and pans. Mm. Long-time listener, first-time question. Well, if you have money, you should wait for us to release the centrifuge. Boom! Exactly. Boom! That was the setup. All right, all right. That's a nice setup. But uh, what do you think, Harold? What do you, what do you like to give people uh, probably food-related? A uh, uh, hypodermic needle-style thermometer. Mm. For You can stick it into any size piece of meat or fish. It, you, you don't see... A hole afterwards, and you can check like thirty different places in thirty seconds. Right, and uh, by the way, so w- there are things on the market that are referred to as hypodermic that really are not. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it looks like it could put a hole in you without <laughs> leaving too much of a mark, then that is that's what, what you're looking for. That's yeah. what we're looking for. However, yeah. I don't know whether I said this on the air or whether I've just said it to other people. Don't ever use that thing as a candy thermometer. Don't ever put that into deep fry oil because you will ruin it. Yeah. Very quickly. And they're not cheap. They're cheaper than they used to be. They're under 100 bucks now, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like between 50 and 75 yeah. these days. Yeah. But then you're still into it for a thermocouple thermometer. So you need to buy the probe and the thermometer. Or do they come no, in a package You now? can get the package, but, it, but the, the probe is a plug-in, so you can buy replacements. Right. You can buy, buy one on a wire and all kinds of nice things. You will be yeah. tempted to use it as a candy thermometer. Don't. You will be tempted to test the temperature of your deep fry oil with it. Do not. <laughs> do not. Do not do that. I've ruined more than two. Uh, yeah, all right. Oh, that's good. I have to shout out Renee Kasberg, who just made a donation. Looks Woo. like all the way from Norway. Norway! So that's awesome. I like that. Never been in Norway. No, me neither. Me neither. I'd love to. No? Yeah? Been to Sweden. Never been yeah. to Norway. Never really been to Denmark. Yeah, I've just been to Copenhagen. Yeah. No you're, and you're like, that doesn't count. <laughs> Crap on them. It's like, it's like the jersey of Denmark. I'm just kidding. It's like, it's not. All right. Good. Holiday question here, unless you have one. I go. Chat room is live here. Yeah. Um, 
So, Harold and Dave, can you advise on the minimum AB, the minimum ABV for aged eggnog? The Dr. Lancefield recipe seems to work out at about 15% ABV, but other recipes on the web aim for 20. Well, if 15 is good, 20 is going to be fine. I mean, how low do you want it to go? That's the question, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, 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 that one's the one from the Rockefeller, right? The one that, the one that uh, is being quoted is the one from the Rockefeller University. That's the Lancefield one, the one that they actually did a, a challenge test on. So I think that's the one that they were referring to. So that this uh, doctor at the Rockefeller, she had this eggnog recipe, and they made it every year. And someone was like, hey, man, it saved my mom. And they're like, well, this is what we do for a living. And so they did a challenge test, and they looked yeah. at the kill rate and how long it took to kill off the stuff with a certain mm-hmm. level of um, – of, uh, initial bacterial load and a certain ABV and et cetera, et cetera. And it was, you know, on the order if it was aged for, I forget what it was, like a couple of weeks that it, you know, becomes safer and safer. Mm-hmm. Same like mayonnaise, same like uh, using eggs in any cocktail where you're not actually killing the salmonella quickly. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So the answer is, is that there are two separate problems. One, what is the ABV required to maintain bacterial static, uh, uh, the bacteriostatic nature of it, right? And two, uh, like at a given ABV, how long does it take to become safe if it were contaminated at the get-go? And those seem to me to be uh, two different things, right? So you could say, I know that within three weeks or two weeks or whatever it is, 15% ABV is safe. However, once decontaminated, perhaps it could be diluted down to 10 or 12 uh, or, or less. We think beer doesn't get nasty contaminants in it. It, gets, it can get ruined. You can have yeast growth. You can have all these other things, but you're not getting anything that will kill you in it, and that is down – that's much lower. Uh, I think even if you were to crack an egg into beer as long as it was pre-pasteurized, I don't think salmonella can grow at those alcohol percentages. What do you think, Harold? Uh, I'd want to check. <laughs> I would check. I mean, this yeah, is all just yeah. theorizing in my head, but, but yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Beer is different because there is beer is pretty lean by comparison. And it's to, carbonated, uh, though. Yeah, yeah, that too. Uh, both of which I think work against bacteria in a way that uh, an eggnog mix does not. Right? You That's got correct. all that protein, all that fat, higher, uh, lower acidity. So I think you'd want to. Uh, yeah, if, if I, what I don't understand though is why why go lower than fifteen? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, especially because the other recipes cited are higher. Yeah, going higher is definitely going to make you safer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just always wanting to play with with the the border, right? See see how far you can go. But I'm not. I, I just don't think that. Uh, I mean, al- alcohol contributes to the flavor of the drink and i think if you go too low it's going to be like a milkshake right yes now <laughs> you've put kelly's song into my head i got the milkshake song going through my head <laughs> which is and it's not unfortunate i guess it's fine stuff do you like that song no you, you've always hated it or just now that i'm mentioning it I've always hated it. No. me too right. wow Wow. All right. So, Stas, why don't you give us a Twitter question so they don't feel left out here? Uh, someone wants to know if they should crank the TS-8000 all the way up while they're using the Sears ball. Yes. Okay. The answer is always yes. <laughs> I think they were scared. Oh, don't be scared. There are things in life to be scared of. That is not one of them. <laughs> um, well, Brunt 
Grupton wants to know, ever used birch syrup in a drink? So far, all I've made is maple leaf variation, and it tastes flat. Oh, Excuse me, what was that name? Brunt Gumption. Oh, that's funny. Awesome. That. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, the only birch syrup I've ever had was uh, flawed. And I still not yet received a good uh, birch syrup. It was, it was uh, acidic. And I'm assuming that it wasn't the nature of the birch syrup itself to be uh, overly acidic. It tasted acidic and like matterized. Something had happened to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I've, I said this before on the air, and someone pointed out a good birch syrup supplier. I just haven't had it yet. Uh, I would love to have it, but I'm presumably it's going to taste different from uh, maple syrup. I don't know. I, I have not had any experience with uh, a birch syrup that I can say, yeah, I now I know how birch syrup is supposed to act. But I'm interested in it, very interested in it. I'm interested in all sorts of tree exudates and saps and their various uh, you know, things. Like so Someone called in before, remember, and they were going to try to get uh, liquid umbar st- uh, styracophula uh, resin, like sweet gum resin. I wonder whether that happened. I want to mm-hmm. taste that too. Uh, plenty of stuff I want to taste like that, but uh, you had any, uh, Harold? You had any experience with birch syrup? I had some, just a taste years and years ago, and I just remember it tasting sweet and not mapley, more kind of more in the direction of um, uh, just sort of brown, brown syrup, caramel, caramel flavors. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna give a shout out to Crosby Molasses. Crosby molasses, in terms of brown sugar, people think, when they think of molasses, they think of, uh, like, that, I believe the brand is actually Grandma's, mm-hmm. you know, sulfur, black strap yeah. molasses, mm-hmm. and um, you would never dream of putting that, for instance, on pancakes. <laughs> never. You would never think to do it. Yeah. Because you're like, why the hell would I want that monstrosity on my pancake, right? Uh, but... Uh, there is m- much more in the world of molasses than that, and so for those of you that are fortunate enough to be in the in New England area, get go get you some Crosby's molasses. That stuff is delicious, delicious. Anyway, okay. Uh, Dean Musson wants to know any chance of an episode on pots and pans, Dave? So much bullshit advice out there on the consumer end of the market. What, what what kind what what specific kind of BS are we referring to? That's the question. So like, yeah, we could do one. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Harold and I we used to teach, uh, and you know, Harold also independently uh, used to do. There's a bunch of different techniques that people use to measure like uh, how. I mean, what do you what do you want in a pan? That's that's the thing, right? The answer is yes, we can do one eventually. But the question is, what do you want in a pan? What do I want in a pan? Usually, I want it to not scorch. And I, you know, I mean, it depends on what you're what you're looking to do. Are you storing heat for a long time, and then you need to so cast iron, right? But you know, cast iron is good at certain things and bad at others. Um, most Teflon pans will die. Uh, most nonstick. I've never had a nonstick pan that that didn't die. I'm just going to put it out there. Harold, <laughs> have you ever had a nonstick pan that didn't die? I've got one that's that's going. Uh, really well. <clears throat> I'm not. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm, uh, you know, not intentionally abusing it, but I'm not babying it either. And I've had it now for a couple of years. What? What are you? Do you want to uh, push it out there? What brand you are using? Oh, let's see if I can pull it back. Um, uh, 
I, there, there are a couple, and I might get them confused. So, but I can, if you have that program, include me in, and I'll, I'll be waving it at my end. I'll let you know exactly, and I'll abuse it between now and then. <laughs> All right, and also like you, you guys, like you know, uh, people who are interested, if you want to set up, consider a particular time to do this, uh, like like tweet on in or email in. Uh, email is probably better for this. Email in like what particular uh, uh, horse hockery you want us to uh, <laughs> investigate uh, beforehand, because you know there might be a pan that maybe you know I haven't used, Harold has, or you know uh, one I haven't used that I can I can look into. Um, you know, whether it's just one of like, uh, so for instance, I, I was at Wiley's uh, house uh, over the weekend, Wiley Dufresne, and he has his grandpa for some reason, even though his grandpa wasn't a cook. Although that's not true. Maybe his grandpa was the one that owned a donut factory, but I think that was the other side. But the, um, a real set of old school copper pans, like full, uh-huh. thick, full, thick, old copper tinned out. And I was like, uh, I was talking to him about it because he was going to get them restored. And back at Jean Georges, they used to have the full copper set. And back, and they probably still do. But if you walk into 59th Street and look into his kitchen, you can see in it's like all the gleaming copper that Wiley said he used to have to polish. And I was like, is it that much better than cooking like on an all clad? Which, by the way, is what everyone cooks with. You know what I mean? Like 99% of people that I know uh, at home. Uh, and even professionally, and for some, if you have the money, they're using all clads. Uh, yeah. Basically, what do you cook with the homestays? Do you have all clads? No. Really? Yeah. You never stole any all clads from anyone? <laughs> anyway, what about you, Harold? Like for pots and pans and stuff like that. Mostly all clads, but I I, I collect lots of different things and and mess with them. And, yeah. And as you're saying, it depends on what you're trying to do. If I'm if I really want to sear something inside. And, of course, I'm going to finish it with the sears all. <laughs> I'll start with a cast iron pan, and I'll put a layer of aluminum foil over it to reflect back the heat that it's otherwise going to radiate as it's heating up and get a nice thermal mass there. Yeah. I mean, unless something is garbage, there's always something fun you can do with it. Yeah. There's always some application you can have yeah. with it. Like yeah. there are places for the old school straight black iron pans too, not not mm-hmm. cast iron or black steel pans. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, you know, there's a place for most anything, really. Like some, like for instance, like we all think that it's it's good to have your pans be completely even. It's not always the case. Like mm-hmm. uh, like in a in a large like let's say you're doing like a a, a comal, for instance, you want there to be a a, a gradient. Or a, or a plancha. You want there to be a gradient across it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's about the gradient. Uh, and so there you might not want hyper even. Uh, you might not want a big ingot of aluminum that is going to like, you know, <laughs> or copper that's going to spread. But anyways, yeah. like so there's, uh, you know, it all depends on what you're shooting for and uh, figuring out what you can do with it. But there are some pans that are just straight garbage. Yeah, everything yeah. everything I have. Yeah. I have the best collection of garbage <laughs> in Brooklyn. Well, you know what you guys should do is just like do what I did. Go to thrift sh- shops. Go to thrift shops. People get rid of fantastic pans. So like what you'll do is is that 9 times out of 10, they'll throw away garbage and you'll be like, "You know what? That is garbage." So you know what you don't do? You don't buy that. But, like, I've gotten, like, amazing Sabatier, like, 10-inch, like, carbon steel Sabatier knives in thrift stores. I've gotten uh, 60-, 70-year-old polished cast-iron Griswold pans in thrift stores for, like, two bucks. So, you know, search and you will find, you know, one, one person's 
idiocy and throwing something away can be your game. Yeah, me and Styles will go on a scavenger hunt one day. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) By the way, uh, uh, a little over a mile from here is a restaurant I got to look into. You ready for it? D apostrophe Oasis. Oasis. Is it? What is it? It's the Oasis. Oasis. You know, it's like the Oasis. Oasis. I wonder what the hell. It's like a bar and restaurant. What the hell do you think they serve over there? What made you look that up? What made you find that? He was probably driving past it on his way from. Stanford. Yeah, I was, I was driving from Stanford because I'm going to China next week to to help build the uh, centrifuge, and I would live tweet it out, except for the entire freaking country of China bans Twitter. <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, you know, and I, I don't have a special like non-sedition Twitter account that allows me to like you know to you know uh, go on the uh, those they have no sense even when we call the, the our the factory in China and we try to joke around with them styles they can't play right no yeah anyway um, anyway point being that yeah I think it was in MassPath or something I was like the Oasis yeah I'm gonna go there after the show and maybe you know knock back some brewskis at the Oasis anyways. <laughs> Uh, are we going to get ripped off the air? We're yeah. going to get ripped off Pretty the air. Pretty soon. All right. Uh, it, Harold, any any last uh, – any, any any super pressing Harold needs in the chat room? Oh, let's see. Uh, they, they've been answering a lot of their own questions, which is great. And Tim Thraves is also offering everybody in the chat room gin and juices at Booker and Dax because he's going to be there on Monday. Nice. Somebody said, be careful what you offer, Tim. <laughs> uh, if Dave has time, thoughts on Brooks Superiority Burger? Oh, I imagine those are good thoughts. Well, this, uh, you know, I've had his burger, but I have not yet made it to the actual restaurant. I hear only excellent things. And so the expert on this, and uh, Harold, have you gone yet? I haven't. It's right around the corner from where I'm staying, but it's always been mobbed when I've walked by. So the, so. the expert on uh, Brooks Headley and all things Superiority Burger at Cooking Issues is, of course, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. Stas? Does this person live in New York? That asks this question. Uh, that's that's a good good question. They did not specify. That's good. <laughs> I, just, I really hate when people write into the show and they're like, "Have you ever like sharpened a knife, Dave?" Or like, you know, and it's like, just look it up or go or do it. Like, right. I don't understand. No, but the, the person wants the to know. The food is good there. So the superiority burger is, is good. good. And if you live in New York, go. What is your favorite thing on the menu there? Uh. Uh, the Yuba, whatever that is. You like Yuba, huh? I, I didn't think I would. I love Yuba. And on that note... We're done. We're we are done. done. So listen, I probably won't be back next week because I'll probably be in China and during transport. But uh, when I get back from China, more cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>